So how do you solve a case like this 30 years on, particularly when witnesses have long gone and police failed to find the killer at the time? You have no murder scene, no weapon and no witnesses. Welcome back to Unfinished with me, Tom Bristow. Our next case takes us to Suffolk. We found the dogs up ditch and as I walked past I thought that was a shop mannequin to start with. What could you see? All of them. There will be a person out there who knows the answer to this. Today, we're going to start by speaking to the former detective leading the Suffolk and Norfolk Police cold case team. Andy Guy is a busy man. Along with Jeanette Kempton, he has 58 other unsolved cases on his books. But he still has hope for this case, and his hope lies in forensics. It's been 10 years since police carried out a forensic review into this case. Time, Andy says, for another one. Carried out in 2009. There, there is. Was that the last time it was? Yeah, that's the last time there was a full forensic review carried out. Now, things have moved on, haven't they? We're 10 years down the line. I'd like to do uh, another review of that. But we have 58 other uh, unsolved cases, and of course they all vie for the time. And what we do is we pick on the ones that we think there's the biggest area of solvability, if that makes sense. So, you know, we'll go for the ones that we think there's more realistic prospect of. of you know, having a, an outcome. What would a full forensic review entail then? Um, that would mean that uh, all the exhibits are firstly looked at by my team, so we go through what we have. We'd then identify um, exhibits that we'd send off to the lab and ask them to give their opinion. And it would also look at rerunning the results we had uh, in '93. So, you know, is there things that we can do now that we couldn't do then? Now that doesn't sound a great deal of work, but the reality of it is, you know, we know we've done two cases in the last 18 months. They've taken about eight months each. You know, to work through every exhibit is, is a, a big undertaking. You know, to look at what it is, where it came from. You know, is it intact? Has it been contaminated? What could we do with it? But they're, they're quite big questions. From looking at Jeanette's case, there's there's not a huge amount of of items which which might be useful in this, is there? I mean the the, there were a lot of missing items, um, and she was yep. found partially dressed, and no shoes. Um, I think they had a top and, um, you know, sort of undergarments, and, and, and that's about it. That's true, Tom, but that, then there'd be a post-mortem, so there'd be, exhibit, there'd be um, samples taken at the post-mortem. There'd be things like, you know, swabbing the body, taking fingernail scrapings, um, all, all sorts of other issues that would be done, that clothes could be taped as well. Um, you've got the clothing that she was wearing and the area she was in, but what you will have in every inquiry is that people will find things that they think might be relevant and call the police. So there'll always be ancillary items handed in, you know, a hammer or a knife or a piece of clothing or women's tights. You get them in every single inquiry, cigarette butts, and all of those things that may be absolutely nothing at all to do with the case. You know, we still have to look at them and put them in context. So you're right, this, when you look at exhibits, this isn't a big, isn't the biggest job we deal with because we don't have a murder scene, we don't have a vehicle. Uh, but we did, of course, recover vehicles during the inquiry. We did look at other, we looked at people. So there were five suspects, so each of those would have had uh, items removed from them. So it starts to get bigger and bigger the more, you know, the, the, the more you delve into it. Can you say who those suspects were at the time? I won't do that, Tom. What I'll, what I'll do is I'll say there's five, um, and there were five at uh, one point. Um, and that's still the, the well. It's it's how it was at the height of the inquiry. There were five people um, identified as suspects. 
Now, but, I know you know the names of some of them, but I think that'd be wrong of me to... Yeah, okay. But um, they were all, just to be clear, they were all ruled out at the, at the time. Well, um, ruled out... Uh, phrase is open to interpretation isn't it I mean, they, they were all to a point where there wasn't enough to take any further forward either to elevate them as a suspect of CPS or, or try and charge them and, and in terms of the solvability from your perspective it, it, it is the greatest hope DNA advances or people coming forward or, or what um, a combination of both like in you know, most most offences, there are always people that know more than, than they tell the police, and they're, and they're probably people that have a good idea who was responsible for this, and there may be people that had a confession or, or suspected somebody that never told us, and I think that's the same in a lot of cold cases. Forensically, um, there is a possibility. I don't think it's a strong possibility. That's like anything, isn't it? If you throw enough money at something, you keep going and going and going to the nth degree. But I, I think there are time for another review on Jeanette and I think there is a chance um, that DNA may take us further forward than it did 25 years ago. So you would like to do that but it's a question of prioritising around the um, the 58 other um, Yes and um, you know we are working through cases and of course if someone gives us some information certain offences will jump the priority queue you know and we'll concentrate on that because there's, there's live credible information that we can act on um, Jeanette Kempton is one I'd like to get to next year, and it is on my, my radar to do a forensic review on. But that really depends on what else comes our way in the meantime. Can I ask which areas you you would focus on in 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 this case, were it to you know all be reviewed again? I mean, and by that I mean, are we talking like the 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 way she got from London to Wangford? You know, the place she might have been killed, the the vehicles, or I think the difficulty, Tom, with that is that you know vehicles. 30 years ago trying to pin a vehicle to an individual. Um, it can be done, DVLA do hold certain things, but unless you've got registrations, you know, even if you identified a vehicle to try and recover it 30 years later, it's, you'd be very lucky. Most vehicles, you know, are scrapped within sort of 10 years of being made, aren't they? For me, this one would concentrate mainly on the forensic. So what can we do now we couldn't do? Um, what could we look at that we weren't able to look at? So it'd be the, it would be the forensic side of things, I think, would take this forward. Uh, there may be other things that come out of it, but again, you know, as we go through each exhibit, there may be something that's, that's you know, there that we think, wow, where's this come from? What did this mean? So, but mainly the folks would be forensically. Okay. And one of the strange things I thought about this one was that she had this um, head injury sort of 48 yep. hours before she was ultimately killed. Yep. So that suggests that which she was attacked, knocked unconscious, and then strangled to death, you know, at a much later point. So you've got those, that period of two days, haven't you, where she's perhaps lying unconscious somewhere or or, or, or yeah. really severely injured? You have, but there's always a, an element of caution with, you know, this pathologist's hypothesis based on what he saw at the time. But, you know, that, that I think is always a caution with not absolutely trusting absolutely everything that comes out of PM because a lot of it is well, well a lot of it is established fact there's no question some of it is you know best guess so uh, I don't I don't want it to come over in a paper like I'm questioning pathologists I'm really not so what, what I'm trying to make is there's always a um, we're always open to other interpretations I don't think there's any any 
anybody in the cold light of day has said this wasn't a homicide. Now, how the event took place, whether the head injury and the strangulation uh, were at different occasions, whether um, for some reason that's interpretation on post-mortem and it weren't the case, I don't know. And I don't suppose we'll ever know unless we get to the bottom of, of who's responsible. I think both injuries are significant and they're both a contributory factor to death. I think that we do know, and that's a fact. Yeah. How they both came about, of course, we don't know. As Andy says, forensics have moved on massively since 2009, when the last forensic review took place, let alone since 1989. I asked John Saunders, the detective who led the initial murder investigation in 89, about forensics. He said police were aware of things like preserving the crime scene, but in terms of getting DNA from Jeanette, which could lead them to a suspect, the technology was very limited. So the best hope of getting new DNA is by carrying out a forensic review. That would involve lots of time and money, and stopping that happening is the huge number of crimes Andy has on his books. So how do you prioritise? Getting new information would be a huge advantage and could justify a forensic review. Andy also said there were no witnesses or forensic clues to take you anywhere in this case at the time. But if someone came forward, that could all change very quickly. There are some things I haven't told you yet about this case. Although it may seem impossible to solve with so much time passed, police have told me that just last year someone came forward to them with new information. It was not, they said, a significant line of inquiry, but it shows that there are still people out there who have information about Jeanette and will talk to police. Here is Andy again. And in terms of new information, I mean, your, your press office said in a statement that there was some new, it didn't lead to anything, but some new information came in last year, I believe. See, so we're talking second or third hand here. Yes, yeah. yeah. You never quite get John Smith, who lives at 123 uh, Arcadia Avenue. You always get, I think he was a welder. I think his name was John. I think he came from London. Um, and that makes, we get a lot of that sort of vague information. It's really difficult to, you know, hang it on a peg somewhere. Do you remember if there, because I couldn't see this in the paper, but if she had a very high alcohol reading in her blood when she was... I can't remember. I know where you're going with this, Tom, because, mm. you know, if she survived after an assault, the alcohol level would be less. Uh, I, without researching that, Tom, I, don't, I can't remember, to yeah. be honest. Yeah, no, that's fine. Okay. In episode two, we heard about a hire van with a London phone number on it, spotted on February the 5th, close to where Jeanette's body was found. It is the best lead out there to explain how Jeanette got from London to Suffolk. That would mean the key to solving this is what Jeanette did on February the 3rd and 4th. That is the reason I ask Andy about her alcohol reading, because it would help point to what Jeanette did on the 3rd and 4th. If her alcohol reading was high when she was killed, it would mean she carried on drinking after she left the Loughborough Hotel. If it is low, it would mean she stopped drinking and was killed a couple of days after her drinking session on February the 2nd in the Loughborough. We heard from John Saunders in episode 2 that Jeanette could have gone off with someone she knew. Andy won't tell us who the five suspects were, but we know Barry, her boyfriend, and Jeanette's ex-husband Paul were both interviewed by police. We've also heard from two people so far who suggested that Jeanette had several lovers 
from which the suspect pool could widen. Barry said he wouldn't move in with Jeanette because other men who did that didn't last long. Then there was her neighbour who said men used to call at her door and sometimes police had to be called. Ultimately, as Andy tells us, they didn't have enough evidence against anyone and there is nothing to suggest either her ex-husband or boyfriend played a role in her disappearance. Here is John Saunders. In, in terms of suspects, I think it's fair to say, uh, and, and I don't think the police would always uh, come out and say, well, there were particular suspects in a case. What I would say is that those names that needed to be eliminated from the inquiry or perhaps implicated in it were all worked through. And sadly, there was uh, not any evidence that could end up with the arrest uh, and conviction of anybody. So we're talking here about the the last people to see her alive, so her boyfriend, her ex-husband, things like this. We we spoke to all manner of people, um, as I said earlier, those who were in the pub. Obviously, uh, it's a distressing situation. She was divorced, but she had uh, still a, a reasonably good relationship with her young husband. She was the mother of two teenage boys, and she was an acquaintance of other people as well. All of those were interviewed and there was nothing there that um, could result in an arrest or uh, uh, charging of a person. Both John and Andy spoke about the importance of keeping an open mind in cold cases. Well, we're now going to hear from someone who has a different theory about what happened to Jeanette. Chris Clark is a former intelligence officer in Norfolk Police. And now retired, he spends his time exploring cold cases. We heard from him in the second episode of the first case this podcast looked at, about schoolgirl Joanna Young. But for this case, Mr. Clark has spoken to people close to a Suffolk serial killer called Steve Wright. Wright is known as the Suffolk Strangler. He hit international headlines in 2006 when he murdered five prostitutes in Ipswich. Good evening, I'm Fiona Bruce and welcome to a special programme from Ipswich at the end of a dramatic and tragic week. The bodies of five women, all prostitutes, have been found dumped naked in the Suffolk countryside. Never before have so many murders of this kind been committed in so short a space of time. Wright was arrested on December the 19th, undone by tiny flecks of blood found on the back seat of his Ford Mondeo, which matched the DNA of one of his victims. He has never admitted his crimes, but was convicted in 2008 and sentenced to life. So what has this got to do with Jeanette? For a start, we're looking for someone with links to Suffolk and South London. Wright ticks both those boxes. He used to live in Suffolk and can be placed in South London at the time Jeanette went missing. Let's hear from Chris. When this happened, when Jeanette went missing, Steve Wright was living in South London, right? Yes, I can confirm that just before Christmas, 1988, he was actually living in Chiselhurst. It took over some time in, in 1989 Peninsula of the Whitehorse Public House, which is in Whitehorse Hill in uh, Chiselhurst. So, I mean, it's and not exactly right next to Brixton, is it? It's, it's a bit oh, of a... It, it's, a, it's about 10 miles down the, um, the A20 from Whitehorse yeah. to, to Brixton. Um, but you've got to bear in mind, this, this man um, was out of an evening in his relationships. He disappeared in all of his relationships very frequently. Um, no one knew where he was in the evening and night time. So, to me, he, he, he uh, ranged far and wide. Wright also killed his victims in similar circumstances to Jeanette, strangling them and then dumping their bodies in isolated spots. He preyed on vulnerable women and killed them whilst they were incapacitated through heavy doses of drugs. 
And so the, the link with Steve right here is A is geographical and B in terms of the, the, the pattern of offending, i.e. the fact that he's strangled, you know, other young women who, who are out by themselves. Yes, and, and also the violence prior to Jeanette's murder, she clearly, according to the pathologist, suffered head injuries uh, while she was still alive, up to 48 hours before her death. Mm. So again, that would be indicative of a short relationship. It's indicative of uh, rights offending. If all of the Ipswich um, ladies he knew prior to murdering them, and from the research I've uh, been able to establish, he was able to form relationships very, very quickly and then leave um, very just as quick. And there, there was clearly domestic violence within the short relationships, which his second wife uh, suffered um, quite badly from. But we, there's no evidence to link him to Jeanette at all? No, there's, there's no actual evidence to link him physically to uh, Jeanette, but to me, the, the timeline, the geographical profiling of where she was, went missing from to where she was dumped in relation to Wright's location at the time in London, that's where Suffolk Police should be perhaps looking at. And would that suggest that she was killed in London rather than, and then taken up to Suffolk? Or? I, I, I would uh, doubt not. I would suggest that um, Wright had a bolt hole somewhere where he, he could have uh, taken her to, then quickly established that the, the, the lady wasn't um, acceptable and, and violence... Uh, I mean, he could go from a very quiet, uh, nothing sort of person to, to into a frenzy, typical of the psychopath that he is. So he might have picked her up without, you know, hitting her around the head and bundling her into his car. It might have just been a, a friendly, you know, meeting on the street. To me, the, the strangulation, the assaulting beforehand of the victim suggests a relationship, albeit very short term. So it's not like um, she was picked up, abducted and murdered straight away. She was kept somewhere for a couple of days. Okay, and let's just um, talk very briefly about what would link right to this area of Wangford. Um, we're talking here about the fact he would have driven up the A12 very regularly whilst living in Norwich. Is that is that the link there? Yes, I mean, Wright had uh, very good local knowledge all the way from Aldborough um, up to Trimley St Mary and up to Lowestoft of, of the coastal areas. Um, he had various jobs um, during the, the timeline that he had previously. Yes, he, he, he was a, quite a regular native to, to Suffolk and stayed on occasions with, with his father and stepmother in Chimney St Mary. So, yes, that, that whole coastal area would, would be um, his sort of uh, hunting ground, I would have thought. And then there is a second death, in very similar circumstances to Jeanette's, ten years later, in a village called Trimley St Mary in Suffolk where Wright was living at the time. Teenager Vicky Hall disappeared in the early hours of September the 19th, 1999, in Trimley, while walking home after a night out in nearby Felixstowe. Again, her body was dumped in a ditch in a field, this time near Stowmarket. Wright did come up on the police database. A retired detective who worked on the case said in 2009 that Wright was linked to the case through a car. He said, one of the early lines was trying to trace a vehicle that followed a young woman the night before Vicky went missing. A partial registration of this car was given to police, and all the vehicles in the area which contained that registration were located through the police national computer. Wright's vehicle was one of them, but he was never questioned. The detective explained this later. He said, There was no reason to see him. At the time there were thousands of lines of inquiry, 
there's no evidence to suggest we should have followed it up. You've, you mentioned Trimley St Mary in that, um, in that coastal area. Now, I guess adding to, to, to your theory is the fact that a girl goes missing in very similar circumstances in, in Trimley. Yes, uh, Vicky was just short of her 18th birthday, and during the early hours of that uh, morning, she was a sixth former, she um, went to the uh, local club with a friend, and they parted company um, around about half past two, um, but um, Vicky never made it home. And the, the rib home was just 100 yards from Queen Street in Trinity St Mary, which was the right family home. And it appeared at the time, quite possibly, that right was there, having come back from Thailand. He was an unknown quantity at the time, and uh, obviously it was never generated as a, as a, a high-profile um, high um, action for him to be um, traced, um, implicated and eliminated. A quick health warning here. I could probably feel another series of podcasts about cold cases Steve Wright has been linked to. Since his crimes came to light in 2006, Wright has been linked to several cases. They include Susie Lampu, the 25-year-old estate agent who was abducted and killed in 1986. Her body has never been found, but a link to Wright emerged through his ex-wife, Diane Cole. Wright and Susie worked on the QE2 ship together, and Cole checked back on Wright's diaries and found he was on shore leave when Lampu disappeared. But there is no evidence, and a senior police officer on the Lampu case described the link in 2008 as speculative. Then there is the case of Michelle Bettles. The body of the 22-year-old prostitute was found in Woodland in Deerham, Norfolk, the county next to Suffolk, in March 2002. Wright was again linked to her death by a criminologist, this time in 2012, but police dismissed that connection. So I asked Suffolk police about Wright's connection to Jeanette. This is what they said. Since his conviction, there have understandably been a number of reports speculating as to Steve Wright's potential involvement in other unsolved homicide and missing person cases, particularly those which have occurred within Suffolk and Norfolk. Our major investigation team has carried out extensive inquiries into Steve Wright's activities prior to the offences for which he was imprisoned. He has been a consideration in several unsolved case reviews across both counties, and we remain open to any credible new information provided in this regard. So Chris's theory hangs on four planks. Firstly, Wright's links to Suffolk. He had lived there and knew the area around the A12 where Jeanette's body was found. Secondly, the fact he was living in South London where Jeanette disappeared. Thirdly, the similarities between her death and those of the Ipswich prostitutes he killed. And finally, the similarity to the murder of another woman, Vicky Hall, 10 years later in a village where Wright lived and to which he was also linked. The bolt hole theory he mentioned is also interesting. The suggestion that Jeanette was taken somewhere and perhaps carried on drinking before being hit on the head. That would explain why no one reports seeing Jeanette again in any pubs around Brixton or indeed anywhere else after she goes missing on February the 2nd. Here are the thoughts of John Saunders. There is always a difficulty in saying, well, uh, how much of the armchair detective do you pursue? In all cases, there will be particularly when um, notorious people have been convicted, their profile will be looked at against outstanding uh, crimes and whether there is any evidence that could link them to it uh, will be looked at and if there's a need then to interview them in connection with it, then that will occur as well. I'm not aware of whether uh, Suffolk Police pursued anything in respect of uh, this particular individual. 
but I do know that, that they have kept the case very much alive and, uh, and it has been reviewed periodically. So I would have expected them to, uh, to look at all manner of people uh, and not, and again, keep that open mind and not just pin your thoughts on one person. The links to riots are at this point interesting rather than evidential. To solve this case, police will need far more. And how, how do you keep cases like this alive all, all those years later? Again, the important thing is not to ask people to, uh, to try and remember where they were on that day and what they, what they might have seen or might not have seen because uh, often memories get clouded and people embellish stories and that misleads the police. I think it comes down to a far more direct appeal to, to get to individuals and say, did you know Jeanette? Do you know the answer to this? Do you know who she may have gone there with? And uh, what can you tell us that will perhaps provide the evidence that uh, can take this matter forward? And that may well be the occasion then when somebody says, right, we've, this is the significant piece of information that we've got now. Now we're asking you to search your memories or to search your diaries or something like that, which can focus on a particular date or a time or location, um, but not, not sort of um, the finger in the wind type of um, uh, speculation. Why did the case go so cold? The, the answer to that is quite simply, inquiries got exhausted and uh, information didn't come back to us. The Crime Watch programme uh, and I've featured on Crime Watch on other occasions as well, where we've had good responses. On this one, it was uh, very, very poor. And again, that typified the amount of information after the initial flurry. We weren't getting calls into us. Our inquiries uh, ran their course. There were no more leads to uh, follow. And in every case, the importance is to try and uh, eliminate people from an inquiry or, in fact, to implicate them in it. And those inquiries ran their course as well. Sadly, we had to uh, call a halt to it. That was after, I think, we'd handled about 3,500 calls and pieces of information and we took 400 statements. And it's not a case that gets forgotten, as we've found today, uh, reviewing it after 30 years. There will be a person out there who knows the answer to this or the spouse or partner of somebody who knows the answer to this or a friend or acquaintance and the appeal still is to that person's conscience to come forward. The questions which remain key to solving Jeanette's case have gone unanswered for 30 years. But as we've heard, police just need one person to come forward with that vital missing bit of information which could unlock the entire mystery. If you have any information about what happened to Jeanette, please contact Andy Guy at Suffolk Police. You can email him at unsolvedcasereviews at norfolk.pnn.police.uk. Thank you for listening to this episode of Unfinished with me, Tom Bristow. If you found it interesting, please share and recommend it with friends and leave us a review and rating on iTunes. You can also find out more about this case on the Eastern Daily Press website. That's www.edp24.co.uk and tap in on the Unfinished Podcast tab at the top of the homepage.